Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 373rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is, in the words of Rolling Stone, quote, both an actual rock star and an A-list movie star, a double brass ring that no one else in his generation has come close to grabbing, close quote. He shot to fame in 1994 as teenage heartthrob Jordan Catalano opposite Claire Danes' Angela Chase on the criminally short-lived ABC drama series My So-Called Life. He then earned a reputation as a method actor who will stop at nothing for a part on arthouse films like David Fincher's Fight Club in 1999, Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream in 2000, and J.P. Schaefer's Chapter 27 in 2007, before stepping away from acting for nearly six years to focus on 30 Seconds to Mars, the rock band that he started in 1998 with his brother, Shannon, which had acquired a massive worldwide following. But he was lured back to the screen, at least part-time, to play Rayon, a trans woman dying of AIDS, opposite Matthew McConaughey's bigoted Ron Woodruff in Jean-Marc Vallée's Dallas Buyers Club, for which he won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar in 2014. He has spent the ensuing years acting in more commercial fare, from David Ayer's Suicide Squad in 2016 to Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049 in 2017, to, most recently, John Lee Hancock's The Little Things, which dropped on HBO Max on January 29th, in which he plays a man suspected of being a serial killer, and for which he received Best Supporting Actor Golden Globe and SAG Award nominations last week. Jared Leto. Over the course of our conversation, the 49-year-old and I discussed how being raised on food stamps by a young single mother who was constantly relocating the family shaped the man he is today, how he morphed from an art school student to a guy sleeping on Venice Beach to a TV star within a period of just two years, why, after giving so much of himself to his roles, he very nearly quit acting, and why he ultimately decided to come back to it, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Congratulations. We're speaking to you just a couple hours after your latest Golden Globe nomination. Very exciting. Honestly, maybe besides the people that are in my house, you're the the first person I've spoken to for real. Well, uh, it's very exciting and I appreciate you doing this. And to begin with, how are you doing during this weird time we're speaking obviously in the middle of a pandemic but life in some ways is is going on <laughs> yeah life is going on for sure and I'm, I'm happy to be talking to you a voice of reason and wisdom my friend of c- <laughs> c- cinematic oh, history and uh you know contemporaneous af- affairs um yeah i mean it 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 life is going on and you know but i i 
can't really, um, it's not easy to forget that so many people around the world are going through pretty challenging times, whether it's with, you know, illness themselves and or losing their jobs, uh, not being able to do the things that they love. You know, I mean, I, I'm a, obviously, as you know, I'm a musician and a big part of my brother and, 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 my, and at both our lives is being on stage touring with 30 Seconds to Mars. And, you know, we stand on stages all over the world and there's a certain percentage of those people that, you know, get tickets that come to shows that it's not, it's not just, you know, once in a you know, blue moon thing. It's a, it's a really important part of their lives to go experience live music. So I think about those people. I think about the people that work at the venues around the world, the, the, the crews, uh, not only that we employ, but all the other artists employ and, and on and on and on, you know, the small clubs, uh, and theaters, which those are the places that we kind of started and 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 we kind of in the proving ground for us really you know an yeah. essential part that's all kind of shattered and you hope that that comes back and not to get you know too bleak but there's something uh, i think maybe because this has gone on so long that maybe there's we we all collectively you know protect ourselves or get numb to it but uh you know it, it's not far from my mind and that you know, the dichotomy of uh, celebrating on one hand and, you know, and knowing that there's enormous challenge on the other is, is quite striking. Absolutely. Well, uh, we will work our way back to the present, but on this podcast, we kind of work from the beginning. Just let's start, of course, with just, if you don't mind, where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living. It's kind of... Uh, you know, a, a very amazing journey that you've been on from where you, where you began. Wow. We're just going back, huh? We're going uh, back. Yeah. I barely can remember now, to be honest. <laughs> and, you know, they've done these crazy studies of memory, uh, and of memories, I guess, uh, and how unreliable they are, which is horrifying to think about, <laughs> you know, not, not just in terms of like, you know, the, the innocence project type situations where there are eyewitnesses right. to violent crimes or things that happen, but also our own memories of yeah. childhood and things that we, you know, that become real to us, things that happened, or maybe like a little exaggeration or something that <laughs> as a kid, or you, you imagined something, uh, like maybe you fell down or there was a kid. I remember when I was young, there was a kid that fell through the ice on a pond and when it happened, I thought, you know, there were three of us, four of us. This kid went out, of course. He went too far. When he was going out, I was laughing. We were all laughing because we thought, look, he's so stupid. <laughs> of course, you're not supposed to go out on this pond. It just snowed for the first time yesterday or so. I don't know. But, you know, he was. we were just couldn't stop ourselves. We were hysterically laughing, which is bizarre. You know, I don't think we were stoned, but we could have been. Um, <laughs> so he fell through the uh, uh, ice and then we all kind of reached out. Like, but in my mind, I can see this image of us like, you know, going hand to foot and stretched out. But it wasn't quite like that. You know, it was if I dig in a little deeper, it was like sloppy. I remember him trying to get out of the ice and no matter where he 
pushed on the ice, it would keep breaking. And then it even was shallow enough to where he could stand up in the pond, but he still couldn't get out of uh, the pond. But anyway, uh, going back into time, uh, <laughs> I was born on the muddy banks of the Mississippi in a place called Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. with, which I don't know, it could be its own country in some ways. Uh, <laughs> and although, How did your folks wind up there? Oh, who knows, man? Those were the <laughs> days. You just the the wandering, the wandering days. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, my my mother was quite young. She had two children. Uh, you know, by by the time she was eighteen, single mom. So, um, and you know, Louisiana, it's a great state, challenging for many people, and certainly was at that time for a single mom with two kids. Uh, but I don't know how we ended up there. Um, and although we moved fairly early on out of Louisiana, we would go back for summers and visit my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So it did leave an impression on us, although, you know, we, we were also, you know, outsiders in, in some way. You know, you mentioned moving. You, it sounds like you guys moved quite a bit. And yet, uh, and, and we're also, as you've described it, you know, to use your term, I guess, food stamp poor. Like, so how do you think that, that kind of, uh, just the moving around the, the not having much, how, how did that shape your childhood? And do you think it still has a impact on you today? Well, it definitely has an impact on me today. It's a huge part of who I am and it's informed a lot of my life and decisions that I've made. You know, when you're young, you don't, no one needs much. First of all, no one needs much. That, that's just a fact. I don't, none of us need as much as we think we need, for sure. You know, there's, children are a great example. When, when you see, you know, when you either don't have a lot and you have fond memories of those times or you see, you know, kids or, uh, you know, enjoying the simple things in life. Um, so I think it's a good lesson uh, to carry with you and... Yeah, I don't know. We, 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 um, I knew there were challenging times, but it was normal. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it was just normal. So, you've, you've talked about the fact that I guess 10th grade, you end up dropping out of school, eventually going back. But you've said that, you know, just generally speaking, you, you were getting into a bit of trouble of various sorts. What was that about? You were you, were you rebelling, do you think, or, or, or just, um, people around you? How do you explain it? I don't think rebelling, uh, by the way, you should have a disclaimer before you start these, like a doctor or something, just warning, <laughs> we're going deep. This might hurt. No, I, I didn't even think of rebelling. I think it was just the norm. You know, it, it kind of how we grew up, what, what we experienced. I think it was just, uh, you know, normal. I, for, for me and my brother, we, we were just wild kids. And uh, I'm glad we, we got that out of our system when we were younger, you know. It's a good time to do it. As, as scary as it might seem for people's parents, it's like, better younger than later, you know. Uh, right. And, you know, we just had a wild streak, Scott. We had yeah. a wild streak, and we, were, we, we embraced it and, you know, didn't mind raising some hell and raising some cane. Yeah, that that was a, that was 
Crazy times. It's like another lifetime when I when I think yeah. about it. It's like a, it's like someone else's life or a film or something. It's bizarre. But I guess one thing that that definitely a thread that definitely connects that time to the present is you always seem to have had a artistic, creative side. I mean, can you talk about just how music entered the picture? How uh, eventually art entered the picture to the extent that you went back to high school, finished high school, go off to several different very good art schools. And obviously, you know, you were on that track for, uh, you know, from an early age. Yeah. I, um, you know, when you don't have a lot of money, creativity is a currency. So, and, and it's a reliable one. You can use it as a, you know, as leverage, as propulsion, as a way to get you uh, to a different place for sure. Just like, um, you know, uh, uh, education can, just like um, intellect can. But creativity is certainly um, a currency. I never really thought about that before. But I do, I do uh, think in our case, my mother was always really creative and interested in creative things. And then we were surrounded by creative people. So even though we didn't have, you know, kind of lofty, uh, we weren't set up in life, um, as many people aren't. But we didn't have um, our currency. I think was was that you know cre- creativity could be a uh, an option. There's there's kind of a way forward, a way out to elevate oneself or to just find fulfillment. And so it started, I guess, music before any kind of actual like fine art. Is that right? It was a little bit of both, to be honest. I mean, yeah. we were surrounded by artists when we were very young, so that was normal. Like people that. And my mother was always very creative and, uh, you know, she was just really interested in the arts in general. And, and then, um, yeah, her tribe was uh, super creative people, visual artists and all kinds of, uh, all kinds of different uh, artists. And so for you, you know, just to kind of correct me if any of this is wrong, but I guess you start out at an art school that's essentially part of the Smithsonian in, in DC, you end up at another one in Philadelphia and then eventually at SVA in New York. And what was it there that I guess it had started out, you're doing painting and murals and large scale stuff like that, but then film, I guess, non-narrative, maybe more experimental film entered the picture. Why, how did that happen? And why was that such a big thing for you? What do you think you, why did that resonate with you? Well, uh, I always wanted to be an artist. I thought it was a, it just seemed the natural kind of place to go. I mean, I certainly had some other considerations when I was younger, but, um, you know, uh, as I started to see a clear kind of fork in the road, I recognized that, oh, this could be, you know, a worthy pursuit in life. And, you know, it was always very persistent I don't, I don't know, you know, I guess I just got that from my mother, but I was relentless. And, you know, when I started at the Corcoran School of Art, it was, I didn't even know how I, you know, found out about it or, you know, but I know that I wanted to um, go there. And uh, it wasn't like kids went there. Let's, let's be clear. It was like, it was, it was, I, it, it was an anomaly, Scott, but it, it, and, and, and I think I was in, you know, a class full of a bunch of, you know, grownups. Um, 
uh, or classes, but they, you know, you don't know why some of these things kind of you're exposed to them or a door, a door opens. Um, but making the decision to walk through is a, a part of the process that always fascinates me. Like, you know, why you just ended up walking through that door rather than the other. And, you know, I remember I'd just take the city bus to, to art school and, you know, I'm really glad I had the motivation to do that because it ex- exposed me to a new life, a new world. And then um, I was always obsessed with New York City, like New York to me. I, I, you know, I think mostly because of things like Andy Warhol and and pop art and modern, just art in general. Like New York was the place to be. So I wanted to be in New York, and I was always just fascinated by New York. And I remember I started going to New York in the late. 80s like I think I went there for the first time in I want to say 87 or 88 you know and at that point you think the 80s is over like when you're young and it's like in the at the end of the 80s you're like oh the 80s are over but now you look back at it you're like whoa I was in New York in the 80s what Mm -hmm. the fuck that's crazy uh Mm -hmm. and it was you know it was a different New York at that time like you still had subway cars and this could be, you know, the memory trick, uh, uh, because when I would take trips, to, when I was younger to New York, you would see those crazy subway cars covered head to toe in graffiti, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. those old school trains. But anyway, I was obsessed with New York. So I, I went from Washington, D.C. and yeah, discovered film. I wanted to be a painter, but then I discovered photography first and I just was excited by the what the the scope, what the ambition, the ambitions that that were there. And of course, like at the in, the, in art school film class, you know everything was anti Hollywood. So we watched a lot of bizarre, wild films that some were painful to get through. Um, but you know, I wish I could remember the names. I'm sure they're pretty fun, epic stuff. <laughs> but uh, to see um, and and you know what was great about film class as well is like we would we would have to rent a Bolex, you know, uh, sixteen millimeter, order the film, or we go buy the film at the film store. But then you had to send it off to get developed, and there was this process of discovery. You don't even know if your film, like if you shot it right, if it was exposed mm-hmm. right. So you had to use, you know, learn how to use a light meter, you know, learn how to use the F-stop and the shutter speed and this and that and the other. And then once you develop it, you had to edit it with a razor blade and tape. So it was a really mm-hmm. manual process. It, there was a really high barrier to entry for filmmakers and it was incredibly expensive for gear and cameras and all of that stuff and uh, and film. And and um, there was... There was uh, yeah, it was it was a higher barrier to entry. So my big plan was become an actor, and then I can get a job as a director. So that's basically. So it, it was only it wasn't that you had any great desire to be an actor. No, 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 no. Yeah. I, I had a kind of secret. Like I always there was a theater department at the university, and I thought it's kind of cool. That seems so brave and. But I didn't like the other part of theater. Like I wasn't interested in musicals or, you know, melodrama or, 
not that that, that I, I recognize now that that stuff is amazing. Of course, there's some beauty and all and all of that. But at that time, I wasn't interested in you know acting. Uh, I was I was a film lover. And I would go to the independent theater and just see whatever was there. Like, you know, I would just show up and just see whatever film was playing. Most oftentimes by myself, I would say 90% of the time by by myself. Um, Because that's where you saw those movies, you know. You couldn't find them otherwise. But, yeah, I was a film person and I thought acting was really kind of fascinating. I was really quite interested in it. But, but yeah, directing. And the whole time I was making music. Like, the, you know, I was uh, in like this kind of Depeche Mode type thing for a second, uh, you know, uh, a, a brief second. But yeah, it, it was, uh, the music was always there. So take me into your mind at, I guess, 19 years old when you're not, you're almost done with art school. You could have, could have finished it and then done something, but you felt, I guess, some sort of urgency to pick up and go to LA. And so I just wonder why you did that and what actually life was like when you got out there, because I think people should understand from what I have been able to kind of deduce from reading, it it was pretty far from glamorous for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And I was in New York at the time and I went to LA uh, for a summer and I was supposed to have a friend with me. My roommate in New York was supposed to come, but he bailed on me at the last minute. And I just couldn't believe it. And I was so just kind of, you know, shocked. And, and that this was a time where flaking wasn't even a word. Like if people, <laughs> you remember the days if you said, oh, I'll meet you there on Saturday at five o'clock on the corner, you showed up or else you lost a friend. <laughs> like there was no like texting last minute. Yeah, you know what? I decided to stay in and get a pizza. It didn't happen, right? Uh, I think the word flake was only used in California at that time. You know, it was like a word that hadn't hit the, the world yet. But it, um, anyway, he, he flaked on me. Um, but it ended up being this great thing. And I said, fuck you. Uh, not to him, but I said, fuck you. I'm going to go to California anyway on my own. And it forced me to actually, you know, reach out and get to know people, which I'm not great at. But, you know, it, it put me uh, put me on the line a little bit. And, and, that, and that was really great. And, uh, you know, it, it was like, you know, this this important part of of the journey. And, you know, I came to LA for a summer, went back and then packed up my stuff and came here for good. But yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, wild times. Where were you staying when you got out to LA? 91 or 90. I think the first time I came, I can't remember now, but I actually had a couple hundred bucks. I was here for the summer. I had a backpack, like a, you know, camper hiking backpack filled with, you know, a couple of shirts and that's it. A couple pairs of pants. I had no place to stay. And I went, I remember I landed at the airport. I had no idea where to go. <laughs> and I said to the taxi, where, where do people go? And, you know, we started driving from the beach because he's like, well, first of all, we, we, we got to drive somewhere. So we started driving from the airport through Venice. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at all those little bungalows. I'd never really seen anything quite like that. It's like, you know, and at that time, there's no social media. There's less 
just media in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so less awareness of what a place is like. And it just had, has such a distinctive feeling, feeling an atmosphere when you drive through it. And at that time it was pretty, you know, it was, it was, I wouldn't call it, I guess it was rough in certain places and it was, it was a, maybe a little more beat up or forgotten at that time. You know, now it's quite fancy and, uh, overall, but, but I remember being in Venice and, just thinking, wow, this is pretty incredible here. So I ended up like sleeping on the beach, which I know is a very controversial and contentious <laughs> subject right now. But I was uh, basically homeless there. You know, I had a little bit of money. I could have stayed at a hotel, but I I didn't have that much money. So, and then I found a like basically um, a, a hostel. Mm-hmm. So I went to this hostel right on, on the main, that main entrance that, to Venice, like that crossroads there of those two streets. There was a hostel there. I don't know if it's still there. It's on the, it was on the second floor, I believe. I walked up, filthy place, like, you know, you just can't understand what it was. I think it was 2 or $3 <laughs> a night. And I, I, I paid my two bucks and I went into my room and I put my backpack down and there was a voice behind me. It startled me and said, you my new room, roommate? Almost like a Sparma voice. And I turned around and there was a guy sitting on the bed naked. I had to tell. <laughs> Welcome to L.A. <laughs> Welcome to L.A. And in, in, in just the, the most unique person I'd maybe ever seen in my life, you know, just a very different kind of dude. And I don't know if he just got out of the shower. Was it was you know was 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 just a, a little, little jarring. But that was my roommate, and so I picked <laughs> up my bag. I walked out and I went to Santa Monica. <laughs> <laughs> and I found a different hostel and I had to rent sheets. I remember renting sheets was a new thing I never heard about before. <laughs> <laughs> but this is all happening in in '92, and what's what's jarring is that it's in '94 that people that you kind of made it what feels like had your big break. And how does so much happen in such a short amount of time that you go from sleeping in a youth hostel without, you know, knowing anybody really to being on a show that maybe it didn't have a massive audience, which is why it didn't last very long, but it had a very passionate following. And I think it led to a lot of interest in you with my so-called life, obviously. How do you, how do you even get representation how do you wind up just the whole the whole thing is kind of crazy well when i went back to new york and i came back to la i returned to la i gave myself like two weeks to get an agent because i thought if i didn't get an agent in two weeks i was a total failure and and if i couldn't manage to win in that amount of time that i didn't really deserve to be i didn't realize how hard it was but I was so motivated and anyone I talked to, I spoke about this and that. And I, I, I don't know. It was, uh, you know, through a series of uh, events, you know, I just ended up, you know, finding an agent and then leveraging that agent to get a, a, a legitimate agent or a better agent. And I just had a lot of passion. I had a lot of perseverance and I had a lot of, you know, ignorance and naivete, naivete. And I guess I, that all, I used that to my advantage, um, 
because it felt like a long time to me. Uh, mm. It felt like I had a lot of rejection. And well, the funny thing about that show is, in in and um, is that there was another show like a morning, like a Saturday morning sitcom. You know, no disrespect to that, but it's not when you're a lover of like independent film. That's not exactly where you set your sights. But there was this, you know, I went on auditions as I was told. And in the beginning, I was like, well, should I not be auditioning? My agents were like, you audition for everything. What are you kidding? Work begets work (laughs) begets work. And this is what you got to do. So I was, um, you know, encouraged to just go. And then, yeah, you turn it down if you don't want it. Or or, I don't even think that was said. I think they basically, they came to me and I auditioned of the Saturday morning sitcom and I didn't get it. But they were like, well, there's a smaller part in it that they want you to do. I think. And, uh, you know, but if you go on this screen test and you, and you get it, you have to do it. There was some weird thing like this. My agents were like, you'll come out of this being the hottest actor in Hollywood. And then there was this other thing going on, a very small part that was just a guest star. So it was like in, in this show called My So-Called Lives. So... It was the guaranteed, you know, season of some Saturday morning sitcom or there was this one-off in this really high-quality show from the creators of 30-something. And I went and auditioned for this show, the 30-something show, and I don't even think I read the whole script, to be honest, because I was just, you know, busy and I, you know, didn't want didn't want to get too attached or just whatever, you know, um, so I, I went and read, and, and and I had this kind of first audition. Didn't seem like anything, any sparks were flying or any, you know, there was nothing special about it. But what happened is I had uh, this guaranteed part, and then I had auditioned for this other thing, and my agent said, well, the deadline's here. you got to decide. You don't even know if they're going to call you back for this other thing. you got to make a decision. And I had, there was an agent, agent's assistant at this agency that called me up and said, listen, I could get in trouble for this, but they really, really like you for this other show. I don't think you should do that Saturday morning sitcom. You should hold out in case this happens because this is, you know, clearly the winner here. And I took her advice. I've forgotten her name. I really wish I had it because I'd love to say thank you. At one point, I, I know I contacted her. We talked or something, but she really you know, um, did me a, a service there or a yeah. favor. Or a, she gave me a gift. Well, and I, 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 you know, just want to remind people, it's like still people are, can't believe the, the show only, you know, they love the show, but it was at only those 19 episodes at that time. Here's something Marshall Herskovitz told the New York times. I just want to quote back to you to see what you think. It was, quote, Jared is mobbed when he goes anywhere in public. He is a huge star in the making Close quote. And you were talking around that time, I think, about being sent all kinds of weird shit from fans that were obsessed. I mean, this is from go- from being somebody that couldn't get the time of day from people to being in the eye of the storm very quickly. How did you acclimate to that? I know that's been like kind of life for you since then. But do you remember the moment when things changed? You know, it was weird because at that time as well, like... It wasn't cool to, like, embrace fame, at least to me. It wasn't, like, the people that I respected and were made an impact on me, the artists and 
the, the, the artists that really made an impact on me, they, the idea of rejecting, at least having a, a gauge on how much you embraced or uh, how much you embraced fame was like the model and seemed reasonable. You know, it's, it's hard to even probably to get younger people to understand that. It, it could also be there's something not great about that, and that's being aloof and not grateful or rejecting, you know, um, the kindness of others or the praise of others, which I think is, is also a kind of a conceit. But there, there's also, there was another thing there, too, kind of in between where it wasn't, you kind of went out of your way to not encourage it. Yeah. You know, the people that I looked up to, you know, probably said no to interviews more than they said yes. They said they certainly, you know, weren't po posting selfies. Uh, <laughs> but it's amazing. The currency of fame has become so transparently valuable that it's almost foolish um, for a young person to reject it because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, opportunities not just fame in and of itself, but as, like I said before, creativity was a currency, you know, fame is clearly a, a currency now. And if you're phenomenally talented and you have that currency, you're going to get more opportunities than if you're just talented. And that's kind of the sad truth. But, you know, not being aware of that is, is maybe could be sadder because uh, it's okay to be um, savvy and smart about things too, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But again, I also, you know, grew up in a different time. And, and I, 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 yeah, for me at the time, I was really uncomfortable with it. And yeah. it was hard for me to, you know, I taught myself early on if someone came up and gave me praise that I'd, I'd just go into a straight of, I, I go into a, a place of like, you know, equanimity or neutrality. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't think it was healthy to let that in. I, I you know, I, I don't know if someone told me this, but I never let it make me feel good. Because then you would have to let it make you feel bad. Yeah, if they and I, I didn't want to be reliant on it. I didn't want to yeah. be, I wanted to be independent from that. So sometimes that came off maybe in a way as I started to deal with it, I was, I don't know, it, it was, it would just take some getting used to for, for sure. So what I hope we can do is, can I just, can we spend a minute or less on just a few of these different great performances leading up to this most recent one. I'll just tee up the title. And then if you have any just major memories or thoughts about it, but I mean, it feels like the first time everybody now knows how deeply you immerse yourself in your parts. It seems like the first time you did that maybe was Prefontaine. This is Steve James movie coming off of hoop dreams. Is that the first time you just went all in on something? Honestly, it's there's there's always been a bit of it. Yeah. Since the very beginning, there's all uh, there's always been a bit of it. I remember when I did Last of the High Kings. This is Irish coming of age story. I spoke with an Irish accent for like 3 months because I really wanted to just do the best job I could, so I thought, well, let's train train the the voice to speak in this way and I remember when the film came out, I, you know, it got reviewed on, on Irish television and they talked about me as this young Irish actor, <laughs> which I was always, you know, proud of and, and, and yeah. super happy. 
about that. And it could have been terrible. I don't know. But at least that was like, oh, okay, one little score from that three months of commitment. And, um, yeah, it was always there. And, you know, I just think it, it may be on Prefontaine, of course, like how can you be a runner? How can you play a runner, one of the best runners in the history of running, okay, if you're not a runner yourself? And I was mm-hmm. not a runner at all. But I became one. And, yeah. uh, you know, I made a physical transformation. Again, tried to model his voice, spent time with his family, Coos Bay and his sister and his parents. And, you know, I felt the responsibility as well, playing a real person to, to carry, yeah. to push myself as hard as I could to, to bring uh, the spirit of the sky to life. So, And I think for a lot of people, I know Ebert and people like that, that was that kind of put you on their radar in a way that you hadn't been be before. And that was, that was 97, the next year, 98, which I believe is the same year you and your brother signed your record deal was also the year that you did the thin red line. This is Terrence Malick's first movie in 20 years, ton of great actors, maybe a little bit of an unusual way of auditioning and making movie and all that. So just want to spend a, a one minute on that one. Yeah, Terrence Malick, a genius and just a wonderful person. He had this idea that if I died early on in the movie, then the audience would know nobody is safe. So he wanted someone in that role that you would you expected or audience would think they're going to follow that story for a while. And, uh, you know, I was happy to go and die. I mean, the... the <laughs> the great thing about that one uh, is that they all had to suffer through this horrendous boot camp, and I got to skip it. Uh, so I kind of did the opposite as far as approach wise. Um, yeah, I got to skip it and just come down and like you know because my scene didn't shoot till later, and I was only there for a week or two. I think we were on the Gold Coast or in, maybe in Perth or Gold Coast. I I, I can't remember exactly. I know it was it was it was out there, yeah. uh, and I had an improv. I had a scene. I said, you know what I said to them as well. I said, okay, I'll go do it, but um, you know, in my my bravado, I I politely said, but I I would really be extra excited if I had a scene with Sean Penn. Ah, <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of people don't know that I've worked with Sean Penn because the scene was cut out of the movie. <laughs> so they did this. I, I don't think they ever planned on it being the movie. They just did it to kind of make me happy, maybe. But <laughs> it was me and him sitting on a hill, and he's you know, he's Sean Penn, of course, the master, and he's improving and just talking, you know, like he's pulling out quotes from the the Bible or the, the Odyssey and asking me questions, and we just have this little moment on a hill. It was quite beautiful. It was very, like, just intimate and real, and I'm sure I was was, was just, you know, awestruck. Um, but, yeah, it was still a beautiful experience, and I was glad to be a part of that movie. Yeah. Next year, it was 99 with both Girl Interrupted and then for the first time of two with Fincher Fight Club playing this guy, a uh, beautiful guy who gets his face bashed in. And I guess you've said, quote, Fight Club was a really small, insignificant role for the most part, but it marked a change in my work. Personally and artistically, it was important for me, close quote. So just for our minute on that film, why was that? Well, I think it was the first time that I 
first of all, working with David Fincher is a masterclass in filmmaking and acting. Every frame is a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's a, it's a painting, um, a portrait of like, you know, absolute potential and it's exciting. Uh, I remember everyone would gather around like the, the gaggle of actors would gather around when it was possible to look at a monitor just to see how amazing the, the, the shot was and just like, wow. And I mean, it wasn't, we weren't like reviewing takes, but you would just try to see a little, just get a glimpse of the playback. And I don't think I'd ever seen playback before at that point. Um, but it, it was also the first time that I wore extensive prosthetics and that there was a change in the character. And I think even the way that I talked, maybe there was a subtle change in the way that I spoke once I was mangled. Yeah, just seeing all those actors, you know, being kind of near a superstar like Brad and uh, kind of seeing that process and watching him work was really, really cool at the time. Yeah, amazing movie. And Next year was both American Psycho and Requiem for a Dream. Requiem for a Dream, of course, this great performance as this heroin addict. And I just think people should remember, Darren Aronofsky is only 31 at that point. It's only a second movie after Pi. And yet you fought really hard to, I, I understand, get that part. There was quite a bit of a process. And then also to immerse yourself. Why was it, in your mind, worth hustling that hard. What was it about that project that that was so appealing to you? Well, Darren Aronofsky had just made a film called Pi. And you remember, I'm a guy that came from art school, film school mm -hmm. and art school and a lover of independent film. So for me, this was, you know, to go from Fincher to this young upstart Aronofsky. I read the script, obviously, read the book. And it was, I knew, I just, from my own personal experience and... I just read the script and I knew that I could, it would be an opportunity to test myself and that I could potentially, you know, contribute something meaningful to the role. And, um, yeah, Aronofsky was, I had to lobby for it. But once, you know, once he gave, gave me the role, he was like, he believed in me and he had full faith in me and he was just an absolute amazing collaborator. And, you know, we just had the 20th anniversary and, it's like, I can't believe that I had the opportunity to be a part of a film like that. That's oh, an amazing one. And and I think this would be, that was, that was the first time maybe there was major weight fluctuation for a part. I mean, that was, I think you said 25 pounds came off for that, like living on the streets with actual junkies. I mean, that's, that was, you treated it as you, I guess, always do very, very seriously. I just thought it was my responsibility to work as hard as I could in the hopes that I could not let everybody down, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, from the actors to the, the to, you know, Cubby to the, the, the writer uh, and Darren and everyone else, I thought like, okay, this is it. This is, you, you, you dig deep, you push hard, you bleed a bit for it and um, you see what you're made of and, and what you're capable of and you, you be an additive and really uh, push. And, you know, it's one of those films where you're like, okay, just a beautiful gift to be a part of something like that. Sure. 2002, back with Fincher for Panic Room, much bigger 
part, I think it's fair to say. And I just, I wonder it, it, at this point, how did you respond? How do you respond to the Fincher kind of the famous way of working where it's like take after take after take? Some people seem to feed off it. Other people don't. I wondered on that one, if that was your, what your experience was with that. I mean, I loved it. I always thought that was amazing. Like, oh, we have all this time to, for perfectionists like me, I was in heaven. You know, I mean, running up mm-hmm. the stairs like for the, you know, 84th time probably is not, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I was that age. Uh, you know, I, I wish they would have emptied the mattress out as I requested before I had to throw it up, up against the wall seven times and, and literally fucked my back up so bad I had to take two weeks off of work and it's haunted me ever since. Jesus. So that really? that wow. was, uh, you know, that's that's best movies, though. I mean, you know, you put yourself in that position, you go for it. And a lot of times as a young actor, you don't know when to say stop. Yeah. Or yeah. just say no, you know. Right. But, but again, working with the master was a great experience in just craftsmanship and dedication and, you know, um, I always love people that are decisive and direct and, and know what they're doing, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm always super grateful, um, for that. And the greatest thing about Fincher is, you know, when you walk on that set, you're going to be okay. He's never going to let you fail. And, um, and you're going to be really proud of the work and, and the movies that you're, that you're in. Can you separate the experience from the quote unquote, outcome in terms of box office and things like that, because I know here, the next one, Oh four Alexander with Oliver Stone took a lot of shit, but it's not for lack of a lot of artistic merit. And in, in this case, just to remind people, you're playing the best friend and sort of lover of, of Alexander. And I, I guess I just wonder, did it affect your way you thought about it when the movie took some flack? No, I mean, for me, when I think about movies, um, I think generally about the experience that I had making them. You know, I remember like in Alexander that the hair was a big issue. Like, I think there was not my hair, but but uh, Alexander's hair. Then maybe there was some problem with I can't even remember what it was. It's like so that's mm-hmm. what that's what I remember about like, you know, I mean that that stuff, the box office and all this, really none of my business. You know, it really mm-hmm. I, I wasn't starring in the movie. I had a small part in the movie. Again, I was, you know, speaking with an Irish accent for months. And for some reason, it was like standard Irish. It wasn't English. <laughs> I can't remember why the thinking, but I remember Morocco. I remember Thailand. I remember like, you know, it, uh, the adventures outside of the, the filming. And I really fell in love with the desert and have a love for the desert to this day. I remember after a couple months, two, three months in Morocco, I, 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 was, I really wanted to stay. It's quite a, an amazing place. Yeah, and, and it was, uh, yeah, I learned to ride a horse bareback. That was fun. So I think of that nice. stuff, really. Yeah. Over those next few years, including overlapping with Lord of War in 05, right through Chapter 27 in 08, I know this is when things were really picking up with 30 Seconds from Mars, and I... I I just wonder, was there a point where you ever thought, I mean, obviously there ended up being this five-year hiatus, you know, as the music was becoming so successful, were you less interested in acting? I mean, during your hiatus, one of the people who I guess you ran into was James Franco. And I was reading a thing where you and he spoke 
And apparently you told him that part of it was that you just were not as enamored with acting. And obviously we're having a lot of success with music. So I just wonder, um, you know, you were apparently turned down some high profile projects in that same time period, like Flags of Our Fathers for Clint Eastwood and stuff that on paper, I'm sure there I'm sure there were agents and people saying you got to do this. So just what was in your mind leading up to that hiatus after chapter 27? Well, I used to say there are two great things when it comes to acting, getting the job and then finishing the job. (laughs) And I, I often would say that, you know, that I hated acting. I mean, honestly, I don't feel that way anymore. I I think something changed in me and not that I didn't have gratitude for it, but it's a slog. And at the time, I just wasn't able to negotiate some of the things that were more stressful for me. uh, And it still is a challenge, you know, but, you know, acting is like climbing a mountain in, in, in when you when you climb like I do, you you recognize that it's not always going to be fun. It's going to be painful. You're going to get snowed in. You have to wait three days for weather, for a weather window. Your body's going to hurt. You're going to get to the summit. And you know the most dangerous part is still to come and you got to get down. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you have moments that are filled with uh, reward and that are exciting and beautiful. Um, But it can also be painful and challenging like like anything else. But... um, I think at that time I was a little more vocal with my frustrations and I may even gone on record publicly and said that I hated acting and that I really, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I had this other thing happening in my life. You know, the other hard thing about acting is you're really a bit, you, you can be a bit reliant on everyone else, your agents, your managers, the studio or director or the, you know, and everyone else to give you a job. So you're, mm-hmm. you're all, you're always every, after every film you make, you're unemployed. And sometimes you can go months, years without finding something that you think is right, um, or finding anything at all. Uh, and you know, as we go through the highlights, that's great, but there were a lot of lowlights as well. There are a lot of valleys there, um, that, that we're not talking about. And, and the reality is, is it was hard to find good roles often in my career. And was it dispiriting for you when, you know, you totally commit to something in the way that you do something like chapter 27, where you literally make yourself sort of put your physicality in jeopardy, gaining 67 pounds, all this. And then it's a movie that doesn't really necessarily get widely seen. Is yeah, that, yeah, I know it's, you're saying it's a little you, you like you don't want to be, you don't, you don't want to be relying on the outcome of things, Yeah, but certainly, you know, art in general is a, um, you know, there's the creative aspect and then there's the, there's the recipient. There's the, the, the second part of that. There's the, the receiver of the, 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 that creative act or result, right. Or product, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's like, you you could write a book and put it in your closet or you have a painting that no one ever sees you know, there, there is something to be said with the, the completion or a part of the process where there's the observer, right? Yeah, when you gain 67 pounds for a movie and nobody sees it, it's not, it's not the most fun. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I had a moment in New York where Sean Penn came up to me 
after chapter 27 had come and gone and came up to me somewhere and I, I don't you know I'm not very close with him I don't know him I've, I've met him a few times I've spoken to him he's a lovely guy but it just happened to be again Sean Payne came up to me and I saw that movie I watched it twice I made my kid watch it you're phenomenal what you did in that movie is incredible and I was like well at least somebody <laughs> at least someone and not just someone at least Sean Penn right uh, or not you know that was pretty cool but yes there was uh, there were many high profile movies if I told you you would just you're you're you know you wouldn't believe me probably um, <laughs> that I turned out I remember I turned down Clint Eastwood because I had a commitment to go on a tour to be the opening band, not even main support, like right before the headliner, but the opening, I believe, of four bands and to get paid $250 a night. And I have to say it was the best decision I ever made. Why is that? Because it began, it wasn't the beginning, we'd already been touring for quite some time already, but it was the commitment that was necessary to the music we, you know, built our success on the road as a live band from club, you know, selling 20 tickets a night. And it's funny because like the fact that I had made some films or some people knew who I was certainly didn't help us sell any tickets. Uh, it, it was just, it, it, it just didn't, I don't know why it didn't translate. I wasn't really eager for it to translate, but it would have been nice if it did a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe there would be two people there, you know, uh, um, that knew me from my acting work. But that commitment was essential and really important. Um, you know, we went on, like you said, started to have success. That was just life-changing, unbelievable. Playing stadiums and arenas around the world and headlining some of the biz biggest festivals in the world. And 30 Seconds to Mars turned into something that we would have never expected. And had I not turned down that role taking $250 a night it was just one of those important steps that led to the success of the band that's so interesting and I think people should also go and watch your documentary that you made about the business side of the of the music because it's mind-blowing you know you you've said that like people assume you guys were always rolling in dough because of the fact that it was actually became such a big selling thing and yet it, it, you just see how that business can kind of jerk people around a lot. I mean, you want to talk about money. I never had, I mean, first, first of all, I took the roles that I had to beg for. Um, I never had a quote. I never made, took the big payday ever. I had nothing. Mm -hmm. I had nothing in mm -hmm. the bank. I mean, I lived in my place in LA, um, you know, that was like, same place, had the same car for 20 years, and I, I never had that. Uh, and it wasn't until the music and the touring kicked off uh, that we started actually, for the first time in our lives, making any money. And then, of course, you know, put a large part of it back into the shows. And the other thing I never did is I never took money from acting, any money that I did make, and um, subsidized music. Because I said, if that was the case, then it wasn't real, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I never inflated um, any successes or, you know, did any of that stuff. Later, there were times where we 
when it came to this is war, we battled our record company. If they sued us for $30 million, we went to war. We financed our own album. We financed our own videos. We bet ourselves, you know, we, 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 uh, we took a bet and that paid off big time. Yeah. Yeah. So what was, I'm sure there were many people that were thinking about you during those years when you were away from, from film. What was it that with Dallas Buyers Club was the thing that made you say, I'm going to come back for this one? Was it, um, well, I hadn't made a film in five or six years. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't really looking. I mean, honestly, I was retired. I didn't think I would come back to movies. Very creatively fulfilled, you know. It was, it was the stuff of dreams, what was going on with the band. And my brother and I were standing on the biggest stages in the world, you know, with people singing our songs and, you know, countries we'd never even imagined going to. Um, so we had so much gratitude and, you know, after working for it for so long, for so many years, um, that we just wanted to embrace it fully. We'd stayed on the road over and over and over and over again. And, um, so I wasn't looking to make movies, but someone sent me the script and I read the part and I thought, again, it was like, you know, with Requiem, I thought that, you know, this is an opportunity to be a part of something meaningful. Uh, McConaughey was doing really interesting work at that time in his life and still is and you know he had made this big change and I thought well he's a good filter for uh, the material and I just thought you know this could be you know an opportunity so uh, I took it. Was, wasn't there something though had you been sent a version of that same script something crazy like 15 years earlier? 15 years earlier, I remember someone sent me the script. A friend of mine knew the writer, and somehow I got like this 200-page script. It was something crazy, like 180-page script. And, you know, it just, it sounded like the, 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 the just like buzzkill. Like, it sounded <laughs> like, like, who wants to make this movie? And then I think Brad Pitt was attached for a while. I, I don't even think I read the script originally, honestly. I think I may have read a few pages and just thought like, I don't know, this, this sounds too brutal. Uh, and it wasn't, no, they didn't come to me. I, th I think it was to, to, for the McConaughey role uh, mm -hmm. that I was actually reading it. I, I just think it should be emphasized because everybody's so hypersensitive these days. I was actually at the Santa Barbara Film Festival the night you were honored there, and there was some heckler about trans-related stuff, and I thought it was so nice a that you invited the person back to come talk with you afterwards but b you've said that essentially and i, I just want to get this quote right quote i made it very clear early on that i saw rayon as a man who wanted to live his life as a woman not someone who enjoyed putting on women's clothing if they wanted that kind of performance or anything glam or anything drag queeny i wasn't the person for the part close quote so i think in a way you i don't know that you got enough credit for for kind of thinking that through in a way that oftentimes these days movies do not. Well, it was a different time. There was a different conversation happening then. And, you know, I think it's, it's incredible what's happened as far as the conversation around representation and equality. And I fully support that. And, you know, I, I've learned so much since, you know, it's like I, I was thought I was pretty informed at the time because it's just my upbringing and, you know, being around uh, different types of people since I was a young kid. I, it was, 
And for me, people that live their lives in different ways and it wasn't, it wasn't anything new or shocking to me. I, you know, I, I have been exposed and had friendships with people throughout my life. Um, and, and that's, you know, I count myself lucky for that. You know, it's, 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 I think, I think it, things are moving in a good direction and, um, you know, I'm just, I'm really proud to have had that opportunity to be a part of that film. And I, I think at the end of the day, for me, it was, it was, it was, it was, um, I feel really grateful, really fortunate. Um, and the people that helped me along in the process that educated me and guided me and, you know, they were, you know, so essential and supportive, um, you know, always have so much, uh, gratitude for them as well. So the final thing I'm just going to pose to you is obviously that that resulted in a very well-deserved Oscar. And then we've seen you in some higher profile stuff since then with Suicide Squad and Blade Runner and all of that. But to now come back in another great kind of immersive character part where eye color, nose, teeth, posture, walk, voice, everything is this is the Jared Leto special, I think, with with uh, the little things. And I just wonder if you can talk about being drawn to it, I think, by the founder, another John Lee Hancock movie, which is so underappreciated. I know that you were a fan of that. Just, um, you know, what was it that made you want to play this kind of uh, shady guy who, you know, the audience is learning about? There's a lot of layers that get unpeeled over the course of this very entertaining movie. Well, I want to give a special shout out to Blade Runner and uh, Neander Wallace, uh, uh, you know, a, a film that I was psyched to, to be a part of as a fan. I like the original Blade Runner is one of my top, you know, top five films, mm -hmm. if not top. Um, and again, a little opportunity to, to dive deep. And I've worked with uh, this, this, this great guy named Chris who happens to be blind. And we actually modeled the eyes in the film after his eyes. And that was really, uh -huh. really... He was just such a sweetheart, so generous with us. But yeah, um, the Jared Leto special. You know, <laughs> I said to John Lee, I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really go for it. And you know, that's it's the only way to do it here. Like, why bother? Um, and he was game, and he really just like took off uh, the shackles and let me run wild. And um, you know. Uh, it was rare that he pushed back, but he did a couple of times. Um, one, we were actually trying to find the worst wig in Hollywood. <laughs> um, I kind of wanted to outdo Javier, Javier Bardem. Uh, I think that might have been his own hair, no offense. But, you know, right. I wanted to just, I thought this guy just has, it's all wrong, you know. He just, he tries, but he just makes a choice that other people, that, that just doesn't work. It's, just, it's always a square peg in a round hole. But yeah, completely transformative, head to toe. And I really wanted to explore like body posture and the voice is always a big thing for me. I think it's, it was a big kind of hook into the character. And humor was a big one. I'm not a very funny person, um, unless you force me to be. And then maybe <laughs> I, in, in a moment of panic, I could be. So it was fun to bring humor to the role. Um, and improv, right? A lot of it was improv. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, hats off to John Lee Hancock for encouraging that. And because he, he's also the writer, uh, the writer and the director. And, you know, he's just smart enough to not be precious about that and to let this, you know, 
guy come in with all these wild ideas and to experiment, not to go, oh, we're getting off the rails here, but just to kind of have the wisdom to say, well, let's, let's, let's keep going with this, let's be patient, or let's fail a bunch of times and then maybe we'll win one. And, 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 and Rami and Denzel as well, the, they gave me an incredible gift and the faith that they had in me, like that unspoken gesture that you can give to someone else. Um, they gave that to me and then some, and really let me, you know, they just believed in me and my process and my whole thing. And it was just a, quite a beautiful thing. And I think we all felt excited to jump in the ring with one another. Well, it's, it's great. And, uh, people can watch it on HBO Max now, if, if not in theaters. And I just thank you so much for a lot of great entertainment over the years and for for doing this i really appreciate it well thanks for uh bringing me back now i'm going to be caught up in my memories all day <laughs> playing these tapes wait wow did that really happen a lot of good stuff a lot of good stuff a lot to of be great proud stuff of. And, and a lot yeah. of gratitude the older i get the more gratitude i have and i realize how fortunate i am um to have you know to do what I've done and have worked with the work with the people that I've worked with. Um, so thank you for taking me down memory lane. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning into awards chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.